Hey, thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Today on the show, we're taking a look at pietism from a listener's comment. Thank you very much for writing in, and you can do the same. Listen to the show to find out how. And we're also going to listen to Reverend William Whedon, Reverend Robert Preuss, and the famous apologist Francis Schaeffer on the topic of pietism and learn how doctrine is life. All of that and more is coming up in this episode of Cross Defense. It's time for another episode of Cross Defense. Thanks for tuning in, guys. However you're tuning in, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you're here for today's show because this is the show where we aim to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul all with God's word. And today we're doing that by looking at the topic of pietism. That's right. But before we get into the show, if you're new here, I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California, where, by the grace of God, we are unashamed of the gospel. And we're blessed to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's true. If during the course of the show you have a question or you decide you'd like to make a comment, you can do that however you see fit. But the most effective ways are going to be one of two, either by the open mic function in the KFUO radio app, if that's how you're listening, it'd be convenient for you just to flip open your KFUO radio app, and there it is, the open mic function. Or you can email me at stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S ferndale.com slash contact. And that's what Jacob did when he wrote in regarding the February 18th episode 10 arguments against streaming that show. He requested clarification because it was suggested to him by a loving and concerned relative that I was being too pietistic in my treatment of God's word and in my argumentation against cinema, the entertainment industry, movies, shows, and all of this stuff. Hence the topic for today's show, pietism. And so it seems we're into it, so let's get into it. <laughs> Given that the arguments against the theater weren't actually mine, uh, and, and because we're talking about theater, we're also talking about filmed theater, right? The, the, the kind of theater we mostly ingest, being our streaming services, Netflix, TV shows, movies, this sort of thing. But given that they, they weren't mine, I was repeating C.F.W. Walther's arguments, the Reverend C.F.W. Walther, from a Lutheran witness that was published in 1888, and I've made that available over at stmarksferndale.com slash Walther Against the Theater. You can find the uh, entire digitized book there. It begins on page 133, but you can scroll through the PDF until your heart's content. But given that it was his argument against the Christians of his day attending the theater, and I was adapting that to apply to our modern theater, I want to let Reverend Walther offer his own defense against whether or not he's being too pietistic. So here's what he has to say. In his very first installment, in the, the opening of his lecture series, which, remember, it was a serial that ran from January to October in The Lutheran Witness in 1888, he says, By St. John the Apostle, the Lord kindly admonishes all Christians, let's just hold the phone for a second there, kindly admonishes. 
Yes, you can be kind and admonish. (laughs) I know that's completely foreign to our culture today. We think to be kind means to just be, oh, always affirming. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, do whatever you want. Be happy. It's to be nice and gentle and all this sort of stuff. No, to be kind is to speak the truth. So to kindly admonish all Christians, saying, back to Walther and his quote of John, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17 is what he's quoting there. So that's how he introduces this entire topic right away. Love of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father abideth not within you, isn't within you. He concludes the first article with these words. Some few readers of this paper, the Lutheran Witness, may, however, think, are not the ministers of our Lutheran Church perchance stretching matters in condemning each and every attendance of theaters as unchristian? And now carry that out to its logical conclusion for our argument that it would pertain to the moving theater, the movies, cinema, shows, entertainment industry. He says, perhaps some are of the opinion, by reproving the theater, one might easily fall into the wrong way of making laws where there are none, of restricting the Christian liberty too much in indifferent matters. That's the adiaphora we talked about last week, as Nils pointed us to Grabner, one of my uh, resources, the borderlands of uh, right and wrong. I like that resource very much. Will not youth... Walther says, the youth, thus some may ask, when also attendance of theaters is prohibited, do things still worse? Won't the kids just go do something worse secretly? Will not the strings tear when strained too tensely? Some too will perhaps say, we know very well that the so-called primitive Methodists <laughs> pronounced the theater wrong and condemned it. But this, they think, smacked more of Methodism than of sober Lutheranism. All of this mind are, however, biased by prejudice, which we must meet first. For all we may write on this subject will benefit you nothing as long as you hold us guilty of extreme positions, pietism, being pietistic. And then Walther goes on, and before he gets to his 10 arguments at the end of his lecture series, he begins by talking about Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Salone, and others as they rejected, wholesale rejected theater in their pagan cultures seeing that it was dangerous to the morals of society apart from Christianity, proving that it can be seen as wrong by common sense, not by Christian sense. And then he walks through church history, 
citing ancient Christians all the way through the ages and how they were against the theater. Walther understood his words would bring on accusation of pietism. He got it from the very beginning. And he denounces the claim out of love for his neighbor, calling to mind the presuppositions, the biases, the baggage that we must be on guard not to let shade our view of the things of the world that we are tempted to love. And I would say we are tempted to love the entertainment industry. We are an entertainment culture. So this is a great thing to consider. How often, Jacob and all of you, how often do we dismiss God's will in our lives because we don't want to submit to his will? Because we don't want to repent and live as the baptized Christians that we are. How often do we justify our sins Rejecting the law as it is for the Christian, the revelation of God's will for our lives, that which we want to do, though we fail at it miserably. How often do we reject that? Even before we begin to understand it, to throw it out, any sort of discipline in our lives, any sort of right living, and to call it pietism, or to call it pharisaical, to call it legalism. It is to confront the idea that Christians are actually supposed to live a certain way. Let me rephrase that. We are supposed to want to live a certain way. What is the argument being made? Are we, are we arguing for a, uh, a loose lifestyle? Are we arguing for what Paul will say in Romans? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means should this be our disposition. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, the sinner, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, as Paul being pietistic. Telling Christians, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he continues. This is Romans 6, by the way. 
We've gone 1 through 11. He continues in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Who would call Paul a pietist? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So the heart that is oriented toward God by the power of the Holy Spirit through baptism, the Christian heart, it doesn't want to sin, does it? No. It, it doesn't need law. It doesn't need to be pietistic. It can talk about sin and talk about avoiding it from the gospel because we are people under grace. And we'll get more to that in just a minute. This is what we want to consider today. It's not pietistic to see that there are a great many sins committed by watching TV. That's just the truth of the matter. It's a recognition that the slippery slope of sin is indeed slippery and perhaps an observation that we have slid down that slope already from where our predecessors once were, men like C.F.W. Walther and Martin Luther before him, Paul before him. In fact, this is exactly what occurred with Walther. He was part of a conservative reformation that brought Lutheranism back in line with its Orthodox Christian roots coming away from Europe and settling in America. This is part of that whole thing, is moving away from the liberalism that was progressing to a different place. They were holding on to the old ways. They were returning to the old ways, bringing it back from the very thing we still encounter today, a licentiousness, an embracing of sin, and then justifying it with gospel language, biblical language. Walther and the boys weren't driven by pietism, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The acknowledgement of the truth, not only in word and talk, but in deed and in truth, as 1 John 3.18 says. So Jacob wrote in saying, it seems you're saying, to me, Pastor Bramwell, watching shows on Netflix or any other streaming platform is sinning. Is this what you mean? Do you mean that watching any form of media that portrays sin in a lighthearted or just way is a sin? Brother, I don't know if you listened to the show from last week, because it's been a week now since uh, I've been able to answer your question. But as I mentioned already, our Christian brother Nils commented on that show, and, and his comment led us to uh, Reverend Theodore Grabner and his writing on this subject, The Indifferent Matters, The Adiaphora, and, um, and his treatment of entertainment and amusement and these sorts of things. I think you'll find it very helpful, because when our entertainment moves into this area that it's in now, 
we have to confront the question of whether or not it's still an indifferent matter. So take a listen to that if you haven't already, and then get back with me. Let me know if it helps clarify things for you. But yes, we have to own our participation, our cooperation in sin. Because we are the consumers of what they are making in Hollywood. And if they are portraying sin, as you just you know, admitted in your statement, in your question, if we're watching the portrayal of sin, are we then sinning? Well, if there's no audience to take in that sin, would it be there? We do have a, a corporate responsibility, corporate meaning a, a, the entire body, the audience. We are part of the sinful problem when we endorse it with our eyes, with our attendance, with our subscription to the streaming service, with, with our ratings. We are part of that. Our hands aren't clean, to be sure. So take a listen to last week's episode. See if that little bit about Grabner, what Grabner had to say, helps you, and we'll continue. We got more good information for you, so don't click over there right away. Hold on, let's finish this show, and then go take a listen. Because this is, this is really good. I'm so thankful, Jacob, that you asked this question. Thank you for writing in. It's always good to check ourselves, to ask the questions, the clarification questions, and, and to grow spiritually because of it. And so to that end, I want to read, I want to read from the introduction of, Re, of Reverend William Whedon's book, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey. I want to read from this about piety and pietism. So we're going to take a break, and when we get back, that's exactly what we're going to do. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Cross Defense. We'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. As I said, we're going to read from Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, Recover the Joys of Piety by William Whedon. This book is extremely accessible. What I mean by that is you don't have to be a scholar, a theologian, par excellence, an academician to read this book. You can be a regular Joe, just like me, just like you. You can be a high schooler. You can be uh, whatever you are. You can access the information in this book. It's great. Thank you, Reverend Whedon, for writing such an accessible a volume for all of us to grow from. And the good pastor Whedon did a great job of explaining the difference between piety and pietism. And I think it will, it'll benefit us all to hear straight from him. So this is what he says in the introduction, right at the very beginning of the book, this book is about piety and specifically posits that piety is a good thing. And that might seem a tad odd to Christians of yesterday. It would have surely been a no brainer. They would not get how any Christian would think piety could be a problem. Yet in recent years, it seems that piety has fallen on hard times. I would argue in some circles it has become acquainted with its evil twin, pietism. 
The result has been a rejection not only of that imposter, a rejection which is meat, right, and salutary, but of piety itself. At the very least, some seem to harbor a suspicion that there is something problematic about a Christian aiming at a pious life. The assumption seems to be that piety is not something which a Christian either cultivates or aims for. It simply happens, or else it is not genuine. I heartily disagree with that. Me too, brother. Me too. So what is piety? And how may it be distinguished from its popular falsification as pietism? A piety at its root is simply the cultivation of godly habits, habits which befit the household of God, the family of our Heavenly Father. That is, piety grows from baptism, grounded in the gracious adoption that God bestows on us with water and the name of the Blessed Trinity. Piety flows from that adoption. Think about how our earthly adoptions go for a moment. A child is legally declared to be a member of a new family. That child, then, is a member of that family objectively. His or her behavior does not have anything to do with obtaining that new status. The parents rejoice and celebrate the gift of the new member of their family. But part of that family is how their lives are ordered together in a certain way. The family has patterns into which the adopted child will now grow. So it is with the household of faith, the family of God. There are habits that mark how the children of the Heavenly Father live in this world as they wait for their Lord's return. You will no doubt notice that these godly habits seem to share an interesting trait. They all fight against the inward focus that your corrosive original sin supplies. They all fight the fatal bend in on oneself. That is the telltale sign of the corruption of our human nature. I, me, mine, I feel, I think, I want, I, I, I. On the contrary, the habits we will explore in this book foster a joyous freedom from this internal obsession. They train our attention outside of being preoccupied with ourselves, toward God and His promises, and toward our neighbor in love and care for her or his needs. Through these habits, the Spirit of the living God puts His finger, as it were, under our chin and gently lifts our head upward and outward, inviting us into wonder and love. A Christian lives not in himself, wrote Martin Luther. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbor through love. By way of contrast, the hallmark of pietism is its constant inward focus, its never-ending preoccupation with oneself, even if that means one's spiritual self. It is characterized by the obsession to monitor carefully one's spiritual pulse by devising all kinds of merits to measure one's spiritual health and by monitoring and managing one's progress in the faith with the inevitable side glance to how well one is stacking up against one's neighbor. Pietism lives by its spiritual to-do lists and rules. Pietism likes to stand in front of the mirror, flex a spiritual muscle or two, admire its reflection, and then naturally expect others to admire those spiritual abs too. It delights in the specific, measurable, and attainable language of our goal-oriented workplaces. Being therefore thoroughly grounded in the law, 
pietism lands its devotees where the law always lands people, either in a blind, pharisaical pride in their own achievement or in their more honest moments in despair and doubt and fear. Jesus contrasts the two approaches in John 8, 31 to 36, when he speaks of the very nature of the freedom that he wants to give. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The mark of the slave is that he has no permanent place in the household, and thus fear and doubt dominate his existence. Servile fear that the day will come when he or she will be shown the door. Hence, there is constant checking. Have I done all that the master requires? Will he be angry with me? Better check and double check. My very continuation here in the safety of this household hangs on my checking. But if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is the truth that the Son has brought to us. Through our baptism, into our Lord Jesus, we have been clothed in Christ, and he has made us joint heirs with him, children with him, of his Father, members of the household of God. He came forth from his Father, a single son, but he returned to the Father, bringing a family of brothers and sisters with him baptized into Jesus, you are no longer a slave, but an heir, a beloved child. In the comfort of that truth, piety is born and learns to breathe deeply the bracing air of freedom. How utterly free is the man or woman who knows that he or she is loved by God with a love that is amazing, vast, and rock-solid. In that freedom, the Christian starts to see the dignity that has been bestowed through baptism into Christ. Because of our baptism, we can pray with Jesus, our Father, who art in heaven, and so on in the Lord's Prayer. In Christ, we are free to have the eager eyes of children watching our older brother and dear father and learning to do what they do, to follow in the patterns they teach us, and thus to allow the habits of godliness to form us and shape us. We'll leave it there for what Reverend Whedon has to say about piety and pietism, but do you see, Jacob, dear cross-defense listener, Jacob's loved one who cares so much about him that she was right in and and to him and make sure that he's not being bamboozled by a pietist. Thank you for that. You see, it's about the, the heart, the desire to want to, not have to. There's a certainty and a security in it. So you attend the theater, you, you watch these shows, 
Does it mean you're no longer a Christian? Do you have to check off a list? Oh, I, I'm 180 days free of, of not watching Netflix. No, no, it's not about that. And if you go back and you listen to my words, you'll see that's not the point. That's not what I'm driving at. We're talking about the sin. We're talking about identifying it. And you and everyone listening, perhaps with the help of their pastor, whom they trust, can contend with that for him or herself in the way that is appropriate for him or her as a baptized child of God in the free gospel grace of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Talking about these sins and even the ones that we, we live in daily because we have a wholesale embracement of the entertainment industry and that we're struggling now to, to throw off and to do so in a way where we're realizing it's going to have major impacts on our lives because we are that deep into it. But as Reverend Whedon pointed out, there is a way we behave as Christians, as I've already read from Romans 6. And I want to emphasize it's a way we want to behave as children of God, not as slaves. We don't have to. We don't fear the whip. Not as Christians. I want to live in a way that is pleasing to my Father in heaven. Do I do it well? No, I fail at it miserably daily. But my heart wants to. If I know something is contrary to God's will, I don't want to openly go into that. I want to repent of it. That's what we are contending with today in this world, with all the, the things you've heard me talk about with the LGBTQ and the woke stuff, all of it. What is the, what is the main thing we're dealing with? Repentance versus unrepentance. A buy-in to it or a rejection of it? We're not talking about checking off lists and living by rules. We're talking about living by God's will for our lives, not perfectly, but the desire within to want to, that has been given to us by the Spirit through baptism and the hearing of the Word. Okay, so now I want to continue with this. I want to maybe point out Proverbs 9. This might be helpful for you too, Jacob, as we continue with my next reading. We're going to hear from three different people today besides myself out of, out of their books. But uh, Proverbs 9, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So now, I want to point us to Reverend Robert Preuss. He has this great little volume from, well, it was printed in 1999, Preaching to Young Theologians. And this is extremely helpful as well. And we'll, we'll get started into this and see how far we can go before our, our next break. And this is, this is uh, saying, saying it another way. This is dealing with pietism in another way, dealing with practical matters. Right? The topic in terms of, of the battle we're in against the spirit of the age, which 
I've argued the entertainment industry and social media and this sort of thing is pushing on us and we are living in. Reverend Preuss is going to bring up the idea of the practical matters of life and how all doctrine is meant to be implemented. <laughs> it's meant to be carried out. It's not meant to be spoken of. This is, this is the first John quote, right? We, we live out our doctrine, not just in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. And so, okay, enough of me. Let's get to Reverend Preuss. He's a much better theologian than I am. And this is what he has to say in a sermon titled, The Importance of Making Theology Practical. And he opens with his great prayer, Lord God, thou hast spoken to us through thy beloved Son, because thou didst love us and dost desire to help and save us. Grant, we pray thee, that all our language about thee might be spoken from the desire to help and to save others. In Jesus' name, amen. Theology is a precious gift of God, something we should treasure and cultivate. We must emphasize this today, for there are many who would depreciate theology. I'm not referring primarily to the older influences of Quakerism and mysticism, which are still very much alive and popular. There is a stir today, a condescending, almost contemptuous attitude toward theology. Oh, a withdrawn, Pilsty-like spirit, he says, which shrinks from real involvement in theological issues. It still insists on theologizing. How often do we hear it said nowadays that truth does not exist in theology? Or at all, for that matter, right? Welcome to the postmodern age. Religious truth is not propositional, people say. Or following the positivists, they say that theological statements are merely emotive, symbols of our inner feelings and desires. And so, with one grand assumption, the reality, even the possibility of pure doctrine is denied. Now, I don't need to remind you of what St. Paul says about pure doctrine and its importance. And we are reminded that we do not get to heaven by our opinions. And we are not saved by pure doctrine. But don't be so sure of that. There is one pretty good theologian who speaks about being saved by doctrine, the Apostle Paul. Well said, Reverend Preuss. We are saved by pure doctrine. He writes to Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so, you shall both save yourself and those that hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16 Now, why this disapproving attitude? Why these crazy views? Perhaps it's because many people have never learned that theology is highly practical. What do we mean when we say that theology is a practical aptitude and gift? We mean that we do not study scripture and theologize in an abstract, though scholarly fashion, simply heaping up knowledge. We do not do exegesis simply for the sake of exegesis. People poo-poo homiletical exegesis. But what better purpose is there <laughs> for exegesis? Ah, oh, so brilliant. No, our theology is always practical. Practical for many reasons, but chiefly because its goal is practical. Its goal is the Christian life, the life 
hidden with Christ in God, the life of faith and hope and joy in our Lord, the life of obedience and love. We study and work and speak that we might have direction for this life, comfort for our faith, power and insight for our calling. And our final goal is life eternal. What could be more practical than that? Let's take a break real quick, guys. We'll be back for more from Reverend Preuss. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Continuing with Reverend Preuss's sermon, he says, An old Norwegian lady in Minnesota used to say, Le er er live, doctrine is life. And this was no pietistic attempt to belittle the importance of sound doctrine. No, it was a profound statement. Without knowing it, she was practically repeating what an old pillar of orthodoxy said, Abraham Kolov. Faith, faith always involves action. Theology always involves practical activity. Pieper was right when he refused to call theology science mere knowledge. Theology is never mere knowledge, my friends. One might suppose, if he read superficially the discourses of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that they were pretty good theologians. Their discourses are consistent, neat, and tidy, exhibiting profound understanding and breadth of knowledge. But all their words miss the needs of Job completely. They didn't offer the poor man one thing that he could use. Their theology was impractical. Theology is never mere declamation of a series of abstract notions linked in an impressive chain. A man is not a good theologian just because he's got everything pegged and can produce facile answers to a lot of questions. <laughs> Preuss says, I have often wondered if the author of Job did not make the speeches of Job's friends so long and repetitious to illustrate how innervating, how almost grotesque theology becomes when it is not geared to be practical. He continues, a lot of modern theologians, they bring up all kinds of great questions and the futile ones, and they have all these answers too. They are erudite. They can debate their points with learning and logic. But there is a curious artificiality in what they are doing. A pedantry, an alienation from the modern world and from real issues. All their millions of words never help anyone. They have not learned what that simple lady up in Minnesota knew so well. Doctrine is life. My dear friends, Reverend Preuss says, if your theology is not doing anybody any good, don't theologize. <laughs> this seems to be a rule that our Savior observed. 
He cut short the argumentative Pharisees and Sadducees and apparently avoided encounters with them. He scarcely answered the cynical Pilate. And to the hardened Herod, who would only laugh at him anyway, he said not even a word. But he took Andrew home, and they talked theology throughout the night. He spent hours talking with Mary of Bethany, the woman of Sychar, Zacchaeus, and his disciples. Not one word of abstract, speculative theology, theology did Jesus ever utter. Not one. This is why his theology meant more to people than life itself. It was words of eternal life. For Christ's theology, true Christian theology speaks to my needs. It not only teaches me the rudiments of a good and happy life, but it tells me the thoughts of the very God, his thoughts of peace toward me. It offers hope to my confusion, and it brings forgiveness and grace into my life of sin. And it helps me to meet any exigency of life or death. Yes, theology is a precious gift of God, and I will seek to cultivate it and will treasure it all my life. Amen. <laughs> if you have not read Reverend Preuss, Robert Preuss, there's a lot of Reverend Preusses out there, <laughs> Robert Preuss, especially preaching to young theologians, this is a great volume, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say? Okay, so now let's do something else too. Let, let's say it another way. Remember, we're talking about pietism. and we're, this, this last little bit with Reverend Preuss is all showing how theology is meant to be lived out. Is Doctrine is life. It's not just theologizing. We're not just talking about concepts when we talk about avoiding sin. We're, we're literally supposed to be observing what those sins are so that we can avoid them. So as we think about piety and pietism, our baptismal life, our desire to want to live according to God's good and gracious will, trusting that we're forgiven when we don't. And as we consider this for our neighbor, that we live for our neighbor to help them see Jesus, to bring Jesus to them, Let's consider this topic in terms of the battle that we're in. We are in a battle. Walther says that the church reminds us that the church is, exists, it is built in the domain of the devil. We are across enemy lines, and we will be until the Lord returns. We are in an area that is occupied. Look at the map, the battle map. And we are in the pr prince of the power of the heirs territory. And so we are always at battle. Walther says we are the church militants, not the church quiescents. We're the church militant, not the church at ease. And we are at battle with the spirit of the age, not with the people, but with the spirit of the age. Which is where this entire consideration of attending theater originated from. So let's consider how the apologist, Francis Schaeffer, how he put it. And I want you to note 
the similarities to what Reverend Robert Preuss said. And I also want you to ask yourself two questions. One, which foot is actually wearing the pietism shoe? The one that observes sin or the one that is leading us into a a slavery into sin again, a, a slavery into the law that is coming to us disguised as freedom, coming to us disguised as a a false gospel that says we can do whatever we want, that things aren't sinful, that we should lighten up and not treat things so seriously when we know they're wrong. Okay, and then two, with which worldview does the entertainment industry align? Our modern theater with which worldview that we're about to talk about from Francis Schaeffer, which one does it align with? Now, I've read most of this already on the show before because this show does have that apologetic uh, undercurrent to it, the DNA of cross-defense. It originated as an apologetic show, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're dealing with curious topics in our culture. We're not always dealing with the traditional, what you're used to with apologetics, but we are teaching, we are equipping the mind, we are exciting the imagination, we are comforting your soul to be able to take your faith out there with you and live it out. True apologetics. And so we have already dealt with much of this, but we're going to deal with it again. And this time, in terms of understanding pietism, piety, and Doctrine being life, that it is all practical. Okay, so here it is. From chapter one of Francis Schaeffer's Christian Manifesto. The chapter is titled The Abolition of Truth and Morality. And this is what he has to say. The basic problem of the Christians in this country, America, in the last 80 years or so, in regard to society and regard to government, is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. They have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally abortion. I would say, let's scratch the finally. We also have the entertainment industry, drag, LGBTQ, CRT, all of this, wokeism, right? But they have not seen this as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed we have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. This shift has been away from a worldview that was at least vaguely Christian in people's memory, even if they were not individually Christian. So away from that and toward something completely different toward a worldview based upon the idea that the final reality is impersonal matter or energy shaped into its present form by impersonal chance. They have not seen that this worldview has taken the place of the one that had previously dominated Northern European culture, including the United States, which was at least Christian in memory, even if the individuals were not individually Christian. Do you understand when we're assaulting the straight, white, uh, hetero, cis, I don't even know all the language we use today, but 
European colonizing, all this kind of, we're, we're using this language and attacking our Western roots, our world. We're attacking Christianity. That's what our young people are being taught today. These two worldviews stand as totals in complete antithesis to each other in content and also in their natural results, including sociological and governmental results, and specifically including law. It is not that these two worldviews are different only in how they understand the nature of reality and existence. They also inevitably produce totally different results. The operative word here is inevitably. It is not just that they happen to bring forth different results, but it is absolutely inevitable that they will bring forth different results. Why have Christians been so slow to understand this? There are various reasons, but the central one is a defective view of Christianity. This has its roots in the Pietist movement. Under the leadership of P.J. Spainer in the 17th century, Pietism began as a healthy protest against formalism and a too abstract Christianity. But, but, it had a deficient platonic spirituality to it. It was platonic in the sense that pietism made a sharp division between the spiritual and the material world, giving little or no importance to the material world. The totality of human existence was not afforded a proper place. In particular, it neglected the intellectual dimension of Christianity. Christianity and spirituality were shut up to a small, isolated part of life. The totality of reality was ignored by the pietistic thinking. The totality of reality was ignored by the pietistic thinking. Schaefer says, let me quickly say that in one sense, Christians should be pietists, in that Christianity is not just a set of doctrines, even the right doctrines. Every doctrine is in some way to have an effect upon our lives. This is what Preuss was driving at. But the poor side of pietism and its resulting platonic outlook has really been a tragedy, not only in many people's individual lives, but in our total culture. True spirituality covers all of reality. As Preuss said, doctrine is life. There are things the Bible tells us as absolutes, which are sinful, which do not conform to the character of God. But aside from these, the Lordship of Christ covers all of life and all of life equally. It is not only that true spirituality covers all of life, but it covers all parts of the spectrum of life equally. And then in this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. We'll leave it there. So, what do you think, Jacob? Is it too pietistic to identify that the entertainment industry is selling us sin and that we are participating in it to divide what's going on out there in life from our, uh, you know, we 
compartmentalized theology over here. Our Christianity goes over here on a Sunday. And that actually, you know, by keeping it by keeping it in on Sunday, by keeping it just a little like nestled in a little part of our lives. And then every other day of the week and every other part of our lives, we're free in the gospel to do whatever we want. The grace may abound, right? Romans 6. Is that not pietism? That, as Schaefer points out, that's the result of pietism. Pietism did that. Pietism divided the spiritual from the material. True Christianity says, when you're watching Netflix, your spirit is being affected. And it points that out. True Christianity, freedom in the, in the gospel, true freedom in the true gospel through baptism says, if I know this is a sin, I don't want to do it anymore. So is it a sin? It's a hard word. I said this in the very beginning episode on theater. It's a hard word. Let me clue you in for any of you new people out there who are listening to this. This is all coming from the argument that the LGBTQ right here in Ferndale are making that drag is just theater. Okay, I will grant that. Go take a listen to my Ferndale fortitude. Sure, drag is theater. I will grant that drag is theater. It is an overt example of just how sinful TV is, the entertainment industry is. But it's not just happening here in Ferndale. Did you watch the Grammys with Sam Smith and Unholy? and the transgender BDSM satanic rituals going on on stage and brought to you by Pfizer and brought to you onto your television screen so you can watch Satan coming into your lives. Glorified. And how it was actually stated in an interview afterwards that that performance was done and, and their lifestyles and their choices are, are embraced because they rejected religion, because they thought religion rejected them. Why did they think that? Well, because they wanted to sin. And the church says, repent of that sin. Repent of putting yourself before God. Repent of your idolatry of self. Remember what pietism is, as Pastor Whedon pointed out, it is all focused on me, 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 I, I, I. I want to dress in drag. I want to be a homosexual. I want to abort my baby. I want to think black people are better than white people. I want to think... America is an evil nation. I want to think Christians are all colonizers. I want to think Jesus is a fairy tale. I want to think, fill in the blank, me, 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 I, I, I. It's a false lie of freedom. Throw all of that off and you can live however you want. Okay, sure, have at that. But where will you end up? And even, not even eternally, a little bit down the road, you will end up depressed, in despair, worn out, run down, at your wit's end, addicted to drugs, addicted to pornography, addicted to sin, looking for an out, looking for something to make you feel better because you have embraced evil. Okay, well, we're out of time. <laughs> Great stuff on pietism from Reverend William Whedon, from Reverend Robert Preuss, from Francis Schaeffer, not a Lutheran, but a great apologist who gives us insight in how we approach our culture and truths of, for today's topic, pietism, and what pietism truly is. All three of those men are 
really, really good theologians that help us understand that theology is meant to be practical. Identifying sin is meant to be practical. That means we, we see it and we avoid it so that we can avoid it, so that we can repent of it when we fall into it. And that's what this last topic, the last three weeks of theater has been all about. Talk with your pastor. Refer to your Bible. Go take a look at what Scripture has to say. Where's your heart? Remember, you are a baptized child of God. You are a child, not a slave of God. What does your heart want to do? Quickened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're driving at. That's how we're equipping our mind because you have been forgiven of your sins. Justified by the blood of Christ. Not that sin would continue to live in yourself, in your, in your body. But that all your members will be put to work for Christ. Okay, we're out of time. This has been Cross Defense. Thanks for listening, guys. Christ be with you. We'll talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.